Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. In 1992, USA Basketball put together the greatest basketball roster of all time. The U.S., well, it was represented by guys like Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, Chris Mullen. In fact, 11 of the 12 players selected are in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, and only Christian Leitner, who was in college at the time, did not make the Naismith. But he's in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. Yes, the 1992 Dream Team is the greatest basketball team of all time. Years before, however, 1936, in the first Olympics that basketball was played, The U.S. was also a very heavy favorite. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the largely unknown and forgotten team that started it all, the 1936 United States Olympic basketball team. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. You know, over the course of our 70-plus episodes, we have talked about some truly great players from all sports, teams that weren't so good and have long been forgotten. And we've even talked about long forgotten leagues. One area we haven't dived into, however, is the Olympics. As the year 2019 comes to a close and we start looking ahead to 2020, the Olympic Games in Japan will start coming into focus. And a lot of the talk surrounding the Olympics will be about the men's basketball team. There was a time when the U.S. completely dominated the Olympic basketball tournament. And, as a majority of fans know, that all came to an end in a most controversial way in the 1972 Olympics when the USSR captured the gold medal. And since then, the U.S., well, it hasn't always been the team favored to win. And That's why they put that 1992 dream team together, partly to show the world that when we want to send our very best players to the games, the rest of the world is playing for a distant second place. The dominance of the U.S. started in 1936, the very first Olympic Games in which basketball was played. And let me tell you, it was a very different game. In fact, Basketball was played outdoors, and the gold medal game was played in a mud bog. And we'll get into that later on today's episode. But there was so much more. 
1936 games were played in Berlin, and this was at the same time that Hitler and his goons were about to wreak havoc on the world. The fact that we even went to the games is a controversy in and of itself. In fact, there were a large majority of people who thought we should boycott those games. The team we sent was also splintered, but not because of anything that Hitler or the Olympic organizers did, but in the way the U.S. selected the team and in the way the team suited up for the games. It is truly a most interesting topic, and we're going to discuss it all with Andrew Marinus, who just released a most fascinating book about that team. The book is called Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. Andrew's research and recounting of all that happened is really good. As always, before we get there, a couple of reminders. You can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for our page on Facebook or check us out on Instagram. Of course, you can always learn more about our guests and the topics we discuss by looking us up at SportsFH.com. There, you can send in comments about the podcast, suggest topics you'd like to learn more about, and just let us know how we're doing. Again, that's sportsfh.com. And hey, you know, a five-star rating can go a long way. So please, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, take a moment and give us a rating. Oh, and don't forget, please tell your friends, family, and any sports fan you know about Sports Forgotten Heroes as we continue to build a loyal audience. One last note, at the end of today's episode, we're going to check out the mailbag, so stay tuned for that too. Okay, back to today's topic, the 1936 U.S. Olympic men's basketball team. Those Olympics are one of the most controversial Olympics of all time. The events surrounding those controversial games and just how splintered that basketball team was is certainly a fascinating topic. And here to discuss all of it with us is Andrew Marinus, author of Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. And joining me now on Sports Forgotten Heroes is Andrew Marinus. Andrew, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks so much, Warren. I'm excited to do this interview with you. Great. I'm really looking forward to it as well. So where did your interest in the 1936 Olympics and the basketball team in particular come from? Well, it was a surprise to me. I was actually in Lawrence, Kansas at the University of Kansas to do a, a speech about my last book, which is called Strong Inside. It was a biography of Perry Wallace, who was the first African-American basketball player in the Southeastern Conference. And while I was in Lawrence, I'd never been to Allen Fieldhouse before and really wanted to see it. And so I took a tour of Allen Fieldhouse and they have the original rules of basketball, Naismith's original rules of basketball under glass there, like you might see at the archives, the constitution. Or oh, something, wow. Right? Really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. And next to it, they had a picture of Naismith with the Japanese basketball player from the 1930s. Hmm. And the person who was showing me around said, did you know 
that James Naismith, the inventor of basketball, was able to see his invention make its Olympic debut. And I had no wow. idea about that. And so I asked him, well, which, which Olympics was that? And when he said it was the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany, I immediately I thought, well, this could be the subject of my next book. <laughs> and so that's how it began. It was about three years ago at Allen Fieldhouse. Very cool. Well, you know, we're going to jump around a little bit. Um, and I'd like to... St- I'd like to to ask you to sort of set the scene for us. Yeah. What was Berlin like back then? Did we really have any clue what was happening or what was about to happen in Berlin? It's a good question. And I went into this project not knowing the answer. Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people did know. Um, I was surprised by the strength of the boycott movement in the United States leading up to those Olympics. You had 100,000 people march through the streets of New York City uh, protesting the Hitler regime. There was a Gallup poll taken in 1934 that showed that 43% of Americans favored a boycott Hmm. of the 36 Olympics. Uh, There was a team at Long Island University that had the best college basketball team in the country heading into the U.S. qualifying tournament to determine who would represent the United States in basketball. And they, they boycotted the qualifying tournament wow. uh, to, protest, to protest Hitler. So I think sometimes we look back and say, well, no one really knew what was going on back then. But a lot of people did, even basketball players. Mm-hmm. Did not boycotting have any lasting effect on the U.S.? I mean, what were, if any, the lasting ramifications of not boycotting? Of not boycotting? I think that's an interesting question. I think it just showed sort of a lack of resolve in the world at that time to confront Hitler. You know, uh, if we had boycotted, it would have denied Hitler a propaganda opportunity that he had at those 36 Olympics. And that's really the whole reason why he was interested in hosting the Olympics was to try to fool the world into believing that everything was okay there, you know? And so the reason my book is called games of deception is because that whole city was set up as a facade as sort of a movie set to fool the world and Mm. to distract from the terrible things that were already beginning to happen behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Talk about how Hitler did prepare the city for the Olympics and how he hid all of his evil. Yes. So, The streets were cleaned. The buildings were painted. If there was a vacant storefront, a temporary business was put in for the two weeks of the Olympics. You had waiters and waitresses at hotels that were taught English so that they could appear to be hospitable hosts, but really they were eavesdropping on what the Americans were saying at their tables. Um, The Olympic Village, the information desk, was staffed by um, Nazi spies who were intercepting mail that was coming in to the Olympians. Uh, There were articles in the propaganda newspapers in Berlin sort of commanding the people to be um, gracious hosts. Um, But, you know, just 15 miles up the road, you had Sachsenhausen concentration camp that was holding political opponents of the Nazi regime. They rounded up um, people and put them into camps on the eve of the Olympics. And after the Olympics, everything exploded in terms of the number of people that were put into the camps in the preparation for war. So really, um, This whole exercise of the Olympics was a great big lie. Why did the world or, you know, I don't know what kind of Olympic committee there was allow these Olympics to go on or why did they not move them elsewhere? Right. Well, I think there was a lot of anti-Semitism within the leadership 
um, especially in the United States, Avery Brundage, who is the head of the American Olympic Committee, I visited his archives at the University of Illinois, and I opened up a file folder, and it just sort of overflowed with anti-Semitic newsletters and magazines that he subscribed to. He would receive letters um, from supporters signed Heil Hitler, Heil Brundage, and he would write complimentary letters back to those people. Um, he went on what was supposed to be a, a fact-finding trip to Berlin, head of the Olympics, to judge for himself the conditions there, but really he had no interest in the truth. He was accompanied by a Nazi in uniform the whole time he was there, even when he interviewed Jewish athletes. And of course, what are they going to say when there's a Nazi standing right next to him? Mm -hmm. um, he assured his Nazi host that his his private club in Chicago did not admit Jewish members either. You know, And so he was trying to not hurt their feelings uh, while he was in Germany. So uh, he portrayed boycott supporters as, as un-American. Um, of course, he had his own personal uh, selfish financial reasons for supporting the Olympics as well. His his contracting company was scheduled to build a new German embassy in Washington, D.C., and so he did not want to um, upset the Germans for his own uh, financial reasons as well. Mm -hmm. How did the voice of one man, like you said, Avery Brundage, how did the voice of one man um, supersede the movement to boycott? I, I'm having trouble understanding how one guy was able to convince the U.S. Olympic Committee, if there was such a thing, the people who make the decisions as to whether or not to go or to boycott, how did this mm -hmm. one guy pull this off? I mean, did he well, not know what was – was he blinded, I guess, um, by his own selfish reasons and really not care about what Hitler was doing behind the scenes. Yeah, well, he was one man, but he was a powerful man. He was the president of the American Olympic Committee, which was the USOC of the time. Um, he was the, the most powerful amateur athletic official in the country, and he wasn't alone. I mean, that poll that said 43% of Americans favored a boycott, I mean, 57% of people were in favor of us going. Uh, mm -hmm. He was receiving plenty of support um, from a lot of people around the country, and I don't think he cared. I think he admired Hitler, admired the regime there. He had a, an, an ally named um, Charles Sherrill that he sent to Germany who attended the Nuremberg rallies. Uh, as a guest of Hitler's, and instead of coming back horrified by what he, what he saw, he admired what he saw. So I don't think we can deny that before World War II, a lot of people um, were supporting uh, the Nazi regime. Brundage was writing letters to actual Nazis in Germany, asking them to send positive coverage, quote unquote, positive coverage of, of their regime to American newspapers to help offset the negative publicity that, that was being written um, and to try to head off this boycott movement. After the Olympics were completed and after the U.S. team got home, everything really exploded. How did the U.S. Olympic Committee perceive Brundage at that point? What were the lasting effects? What was the legacy, I guess, of Avery Brundage at that point? Well, surprisingly, it was improved, right? He, he was promoted. He became the longtime head of the International Olympic Committee. So it wasn't like they said, hey, man, you were on the wrong side of history back then. See you later. They promoted him. 
which is really uh, sort of disgusting to think about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why was that? Why was there no backlash against him when all this really happened? Well, I think that he had a lot of allies, people who felt the same way in the structure of the International Olympic Committee. The man who was president of the IOC at the time of the 36 Olympics died a few years later. His casket was draped with an Olympic flag and a Nazi flag. Um, You had a lot of the leadership in the IOC that were um, sort of right-wing European aristocrats, and they didn't really have a problem with Brundage. He He was one of them. Mm, really interesting. All right, let's let let let's talk about some of the good. One yes. of the very cool things about basketball at the 1936 Olympics was, as you had discussed, the involvement of Dr. James Naismith. Can you talk about that and how he was involved? Uh, you know, what did he do? He was able to get there and see the game that he invented. He was able to see it played in the Olympics, which is actually pretty phenomenal. Talk about that. Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing to think that here you had a man who invented a game in one gymnasium in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1891. And by 1936, just 45 years later, his invention has become so popular around the world that you could play in the Olympics and you would still be alive to go see it. Um, it was his protege, Fogg Allen, coach at Kansas, that was really responsible for two things. One, for Naismith being there in Berlin in the first place, and second, for basketball being played in those Olympics. Mm-hmm. So uh, Fogg Allen felt like his uh, the, the inventor of the game should be there. So he started what was called a Pennies for Naismith campaign where people all over the country um, threw pennies and nickels onto blankets at high school and college and other amateur basketball games um, during the Depression um, to raise enough money for Naismith to sail to Berlin for the Olympics. And then it was also Fog Allen who really sort of saw basketball for what we think of it today as a tournament sport, a spectator sport, and um, was very interested in the international the growth of the game. So he was lobbying for basketball to be included in the Olympics for years. He thought it might be included in the 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles. Uh, he struck out there, but he made contacts through that process that ultimately led to his success in getting basketball added to the 36 Olympics. Fog Allen wasn't able to go to Berlin. His Kansas team didn't qualify for the tournament uh, or to, to represent the United States, but Naismith was able to go. And he said it was the highlight of his life to mm. see um, his invention played uh, by all these countries at the 36 Olympics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk more about how basketball became a part of the games. I mean, today we see that different sports or games at the Olympics, you know, they, they, they go through like a trial. They might have right. to do, you know, one or two Olympics before they become an official Olympic sport or they say, no, it's, 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 it's not what we want. Um, how, did the ba- how did basketball become a part of the game, a, a part okay, so of the Olympic Games? And, oh, wait, and one other thing. Yes. How did basketball catch on? around the world like it did yeah okay so i'll answer that first part so when naismith invented basketball it was at the international ymca training school in springfield massachusetts and so you had students there that came from all over the world um, who were leaving the school to go back all over the world to run ymcas Uh, and so when he invented the game 
the players in that first game were international. There was a student from Japan who made a sketch of the very first basketball game ever played. Hmm. And so they learned this new game and then took it with them back home. Um, also, the YMCA school had a magazine called The Triangle, and they mailed out that magazine a few weeks after the first basketball game with Naismith's rules, and that was sent to Wise all over the world. And so pretty quickly in this world that didn't have TV or the internet or anything or email, the, the rules spread quickly just because of where the game had happened to be invented. Hmm. Um, the other part of your question is how did it happen? It was played as an exhibition sport at a few Olympics, um, including in 1904 in St. Louis. And after those Olympics, Fog Allen, who we talked about earlier, was a teenager living in Missouri. And he challenged the, the team that had won that exhibition, which was called the Buffalo Germans. They were German immigrants from Buffalo, New York. Mm -hmm. Fog Allen invited them to come to Kansas City to play a best out of three tournament. He was sort of a cocky kid and he felt like his team from kansas city could beat these guys and so they came down and they did fog allen's team won two out of those three games that they played james naismith was the referee in the third game hmm. um and so from there i think that's what fog allen had in the back of his mind is you know basketball needs to be an official olympic sport he was corresponding with basketball officials in japan and germany and at the L.A. Olympics, he thought that they would add it as an exhibition sport. They didn't. They chose American football instead, even though hardly any other countries even played football. Mm. But the organizers felt like they could sell out the Rose Bowl with the football game. And they did. So they made money on tickets. And that's what really they were concerned about. But at those Olympics, um, Alan met with a guy from Japan who basically promised that they would include basketball in the 1940 Olympics in Tokyo. But those Olympics never happened because of World War II. Uh, he also met with a German Olympic official. And then he had another contact inside Nazi Germany, a guy named Fritz Zwicky, who had attended an American basketball camp years earlier. And Fog Allen got to know him there. Um, back in the Nazi regime, this man was a member of the Hitler Youth uh, Management. And so he was sort of Allen's insider within the, the Nazi government. Um, that helped him land basketball in the 36 Olympics, which is a little bit uh, uncomfortable <laughs> to think about that yeah. it was the Nazis, yeah. the Nazis that gave us Olympic basketball. The and, and and Germany did they participate? As I was going through, I I, I can't remember. I guess so. We'll talk. Did I just uh, out of did Germany participate? They did participate. So 32 teams entered the Olympic basketball tournament in 1936. It was the most countries that participated in any team sport at those Olympics. Um, only 31 actually played. The team from Spain went home right on the eve of their first game. Right, um, because, because of the Spanish Civil, Civil War. War. Right. And that's who the United States was supposed to play in the first round. So we won our very first Olympic basketball game by forfeit. Um, basketball, though, was, was not a very big deal in Germany at the time. It wasn't popular. And so even the games themselves, they were played outside on uh, clay tennis courts that they had converted into basketball courts. Mm -hmm. And uh, that worked okay in the first few rounds when there was good weather. But the day of the gold medal game was a driving rainstorm. Yeah, it was, a, player, it was a slop fest. It was a quagmire. Was a, exactly. The players said they would try to dribble the ball and it would just get stuck in the mud. Or the ball itself became waterlogged and was extremely heavy. So the um, United States beat Canada 
19 to 8, which was a very low scoring game, even for the for that day, mm-hmm. for, that, for those days. How, how did the game of basketball differ from what we see today? Obviously, it is a high flying, incredible spectacle of a sport that we watch today. And when the game was first played, it was a lot different. Can you talk about some of the differences? Yes, and uh, the U.S. Olympic team itself sort of illustrated those differences. So the way they created the team that year is the players didn't try out as individuals. There was a a qualifying tournament that culminated at Madison Square Garden, and they decided that whichever two teams advanced to the championship game of that tournament would be combined to become the U.S. Olympic basketball team. And those two teams were AAU teams, and AAU was very different back then. It wasn't high school players. It was former college players who played for basically company-sponsored basketball teams. This is before there was an NBA. So mm-hmm. the two teams that met in that championship game were one was from McPherson, Kansas, from an oil refinery there. And they were a team that played more of this, what you would call a modern style of basketball. They they ran a fast-break offense and a full-court press defense they had tall players who could dunk you know and they, they were an exciting team they called themselves the wild men <laughs> the yeah. other team came from los angeles where they were sponsored by universal pictures of all things and they called themselves the sure passers <laughs> and they played <laughs> what you would as if that was like an exciting marketing <laughs> sure passers <laughs> they, they would walk the ball up the court and play more of what we might think of as like a princeton style of, of basketball mm-hmm. right and so those two teams were combined to become the U.S. Olympic team. Very different styles. Um, some of the rules were different. So there was no goaltending. Um, so tall players could stand next to the basket and try to catch a shot hmm. as it came in. At the Olympic tournament, they still had the center jump after every made basket, um, which was a big advantage to the United States because we had the tallest players in the tournament. So we could score and then win the jump ball after and keep possession. Um, mm. So those were probably the mm. biggest differences in the way the game was played back then. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little more, though, about the qualifying tournament at Madison Square Garden. Um, it didn't turn out to be as big a deal as organizers had hoped it to be. The games did not sell out. One of the biggest sponsors had you know, a questionable background because it was the German National Railway. There was a team that was disqualified. I believe it was the Denver Y. Tell us more about the tournament and how, I guess, disappointing it was. Yeah, the American Olympic Committee um, had actually expected to raise enough money through the ticket sales at Madison Square Garden for the basketball tournament to send the entire U.S. delegation to Germany, not just basketball, but every athlete, every Oh, wow. And it turned out to be a huge disappointment. Uh, the crowds were relatively small at the at the tournament. And I think a few of the factors that contributed to that were, one, uh, this boycott effort that I mentioned was, was strongest in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so there was uh, sort of local sentiment against the Olympics at that time. Also, the team from Long Island University, you know, boycotted this tournament. And they were the best college basketball team in the country, coached by Claire B., at that time, they had something like a 36-game winning streak mm. heading into the tournament. And so you had sort of the local favorites 
not participating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those two things sort of combine to this um, this this uh, lack of turnout for the tournament itself. You're right. There was a team that was disqualified. They had actually um, tried to compete in the tournament, had been beaten, and then changed the name of their team to try to re-enter the tournament. And so <laughs> they were they were found out <laughs> and disqualified. Uh, which is kind of crazy to think that that would actually happen, right? Um, and so it was sort of a bizarre tournament. They didn't raise enough money even for the basketball team to get to Berlin, let alone the rest of the Olympic delegation. And so when the team from Los Angeles and the team from Kansas went home after this tournament, they had to raise their own money uh, to get back to New York City to get on the boat to Germany. Uh, the team in McPherson went door to door asking for dollars um, from the citizens and the businesses of McPherson, Kansas, to just drive gas money, you know, back mm. to New York City. The team from uh, from L.A., from Hollywood, was about a day away from not being able to go at all. They had wow. qualified for the Olympics and they weren't going to be able to go until finally a group of Hollywood movie stars and directors chipped in enough money for them to get on the train to New York and they just barely made it in time to get on the boat. Hmm. Hmm. You know, one, one thing you mentioned was the team from Long Island boycotted. They didn't play. And I wonder this, Andrew, one area we haven't addressed in our conversation yet is this in the early days of basketball, Jews played a large role in the game. And this could also be a part of the reason why the tournament wasn't as successful as they had hoped it would be at Madison Square Garden. So many of the early stars of basketball were Jewish. How did this play into the entire story of the 1936 U.S. Olympic basketball team? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so the Long Island team had about uh, five Jewish players on their team. And so um, when Coach B sat them down, he said, if there's any single member of our team that you know is not comfortable with the idea of going to Nazi Germany to play in this tournament, um, we won't go. And so they took a vote, and I think seven hands went up. So it wasn't just the Jewish players that um, decided to boycott. But yes, New York City was sort of the center of Jewish basketball at that time. There were, uh, it was a way for uh, Jewish kids who maybe were first or second generation immigrants to the United States to kind of assimilate, much like you saw with the sport of baseball and other ethnic groups. Um, I do think that's a reason why the, um, the boycott effort was so strong in New York City is because of the Jewish um, leadership, political and, and religious leadership in the city. And that certainly contributed to the, um, to the sort of fans expressing their opinion by not showing up for the basketball tournament. There was also one member of the U.S. team who was Jewish. Uh, His name was Sam Balter. He played for the team from Universal Pictures in Hollywood, and he had played college ball at UCLA. And when his team from Universal won the qualifying tournament at Madison Square Garden, he was walking off the court and was approached by a newspaper reporter who said, are you going to Berlin? And he said it was at that moment that he really sort of first realized the, the gravity of the of the decision he had to make, you know, um, Mm. what was he going to do? And so he asked for opinions from people that he knew and people he respected, um, members of the Jewish uh, community in Los Angeles. And he said that pretty quickly, this, uh, 
the advice he was receiving, he said, sort of um, devolved from uh, high-minded uh, political conversation to a what he called a bitter personal rebuke. And people telling him, well, if you go, you're a bad person, and how could you even possibly consider this? And he said that that kind of turned him off to that argument, and he may have been rationalizing it, but he decided the best thing that he could do, knowing what he knew at the time, was to to go to Berlin, to play well, to win a gold medal, and that that would be the best way to refute uh, Hitler's views of Aryan supremacy. And that was basically the same attitude that Jesse Owens had. I was had just going to say, sort of, well. like, sort of like Jesse Owens. Yeah, exactly. And Jesse Owens, of course, wins four gold medals at those Olympics and is the star of the U.S. basketball team. And I think that in their own way, they felt like they had done what they could do. Of course, in retrospect, we know that still six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust and we still had World War II. We still had anti-Semitism and racism in the United States. So, you know, I don't know that any big picture uh, problems were solved by their success athletically in those Olympics. But knowing what they did at the time, they felt like they were doing what was best. And I think you have to give them uh, credit for making what they felt was the best decision at the time. The tournament at Madison Square Garden, did Avery Brundage, if he was responsible for organizing that tournament and and having it played at Madison Square Garden, did he maybe overestimate the way people would turn out? Did Did he make a mistake? Should he have staged the tournament someplace else? Oh, um, I don't think I can criticize him for that decision at that that point in history madison square garden much like it is today it was sort of the mecca of basketball you know and if you were going to have a big national tournament conclude anywhere it made sense that was the place it would be so i, I won't knock him for that mm-hmm. how big was anti-semitism in new york at that time i mean you're talking earlier about how big anti-semitism was in the u.s what about new york was it a microcosm of what it is in you know what it was around the country or was it smaller in new york oh warren that's one i'm not sure if i have a great answer okay. <laughs> for you on that question. okay no problem I, I mean honestly i think it probably was microcosm, but you had a much larger Jewish population there than most other parts of the country. So to whatever degree there it, there was anti-Semitism may have been um, at least counterbalanced by a strong Jewish presence and leadership in the city. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times I'll ask this question towards the end of each podcast, but today I'm going to ask it now. Okay. What surprised you most about this subject when you were doing your research and and why? And was there anything that made you feel uncomfortable? Um, there were a lot of surprises. And that's one piece of advice I've gotten from some other authors of nonfiction is to be open to anything you might learn. And so in that respect, you're not surprised by anything because you'd have no sort of pre presumptions. <laughs> but on the other hand, you, you're surprised by everything because you want to be open to whatever you learn. So a few of the things that surprised me, some are just more fun basketball things and some are more serious mm-hmm. social mm-hmm. things. But um, the, the guy that was considered the first player ever to dunk the basketball was a member of this Olympic team. Uh, his name was Joe Fortenberry. He played for the, the team from Kansas, the McPherson refiners, and he dunked a ball in New York city. And the media there had never seen a dunk before. Hmm. Um, 
Arthur Daly for the New York Times saw this and he was trying to describe to his readers um, what he had just seen. And imagine trying to describe a dunk to like your readership that's <laughs> never seen it, right? And so he said that this unusual shooting motion looked like a diner customer dunking their roll in coffee. And that's <laughs> that's where this term dunk comes from. Wow, that's really <laughs> well, cool. Yeah, so I was surprised to learn about that. Um, I was surprised to learn about the background of this team from Los Angeles, that they were actually sponsored by a movie studio, Universal Pictures. And the guy at the studio that created the team, his name was Jack Pierce, and he was the head makeup artist at the studio. He's the guy that created iconic looks for Frankenstein character in the movies and for Hunchback of Notre Dame. And he was also the organizer of their basketball team, which um, they used their team as a way to promote their movies. Very uh, cool. They would show up in small towns and um, have big banners with characters like Oswald the Rabbit that was the predecessor to Mickey Mouse, you know, on the banner. And Jack Pierce would dress up players in costumes from the movies. So their tallest player was a guy named Frank Lubin who they would dress up like Frankenstein before games, <laughs> with the green paint and everything. And um, so he would entertain the crowd before the games. And then as the game started, he would uh, change out of his Frankenstein costume and come back and play the second half of the basketball game. So those were sort of fun surprises uh, mm -hmm. as I was learning about the basketball side. Mm -hmm. uh, on the more political side, I was surprised when I was at the Brundage archives to see the correspondence he had with Nazis asking them to send, like I mentioned, positive news coverage of the Nazi regime to American newspapers to try mm -hmm. to influence public opinion here. Um, and then I was surprised that the gold medal game was play played outside in a driving rainstorm. I mean, who, who would imagine that? Right. And, uh, the organizer said, well, we play soccer outside, so you can play basketball outside. <laughs> <laughs> hey, who coached the team and how is he selected? Yes. So the, the coaches of those two teams that qualified became the coaching staff for the Olympic team. And they didn't have like seven assistants. Like you might be sitting on, see sitting on a bench now. Uh, it was one guy from each team. So the coach of the team from McPherson, Kansas, his name was Gene Johnson. And he was seen as sort of an innovator in basketball at that time. I mentioned he their team was the one that played this fast-paced brand of basketball and he was criticized by a lot of coaches of the time who said that that was not real basketball <laughs> you know <laughs> um but really he was the visionary uh the coach of the team from hollywood his name was jimmy needles he later became the athletic director at university of san francisco um he was just an out of work um unemployed former college basketball coach in Los Angeles. And he didn't even become the coach of this team from um, Universal Pictures until the time of the qualifying tournament. They had been winning games without a coach. And um, he was just added at the last minute to coach them as they went to New York City. And so here's a guy that a few weeks before the Olympics didn't even have a job. And then he finds himself on a boat to Berlin to be the head coach of the U.S. Olympic oh, basketball wow. team. Yeah, great story. But his own players kind of resented him and they didn't really know him or, or even want him around because they had been doing just fine without him. Hmm. Interesting. All right, Andrew, I think we've done a pretty good job at setting up the atmosphere surrounding the 36 Olympics. Let's talk about the games themselves. So in regards to basketball, 
how were the teams seeded and which teams were the favorites and why? Well, the, the favorites by far was the United States. Everyone assumed that we would win the gold medal. The tournament was set up in a really weird fashion. It's unrecognizable to us today. It wasn't any sort of round robin or bracket type NCAA tournament structure. Um, basically, games were played and then all the names were put in a hat. You still had sort of um, losers playing. It was double elimination, I suppose. But there was no clear bracket that you could look at and say, well, this is going to be our opponent next. And so everyone was a little bit confused about how this worked. As I mentioned, the United States won our first game uh, by forfeit um, because Spain had to go home. Um, the other best teams in the country were the other North American teams, um, which is unusual because uh, Canada won the silver medal in the Olympics and Mexico won the bronze medal in basketball in those Olympics. And those are both the last times, the first and only times that either of those countries have medals hmm. in Olympic basketball. Um, Basketball, I mean, the Olympics weren't contested again until 1948 um, after World War II. Um, since then, European countries have become, you know, our top competition for the most part mm -hmm. in the Olympics. They were not um, good <laughs> at the time of the 36 Olympics. The game was really just sort of catching on. Um, some of the teams would only pass the ball with two hands over their heads like a soccer throw in. That's the way they were still playing the game of basketball. In some European countries at the time, there were some European referees that would call traveling anytime a player moved with the ball, even if they were dribbling the ball. They had that little understanding of how the game huh. was played. Um, one interesting aspect of the international growth of the game following the Olympics comes back to Frank Lubin, the Hollywood player who I mentioned would be dressed up like Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. His parents were from Lithuania. And after the 36 Olympics, the country of Lithuania invited Frank Lubin to stay in Europe and to come back to their country and teach the game there. And so he did that. And um, he was the first coach of the Lithuanian national team. And then after World War II, you know, Lithuania is taken over by the Soviet Union. And the players that he had coached became coaches that were producing players that were on the great Soviet teams. And so... In the 1972 Olympics, the next time the Olympics returned to Germany in Munich, that's the controversial gold medal game where the Soviets beat the United States at the, you know, on that buzzer beater, which I think which they was got played like States. three or four different times. Three or four different times, right. Players on that team all knew who Frank Lubin was as sort of the father of Lithuanian basketball. Um, and then, you know, Lithuania gains its independence more recently, and players like Arvidas Sabonis and Sharunas Marcellunas who played in the NBA and also um, played on the Lithuanian team at the 92 and 96 Olympics, they all considered Frank Lubin their James Naismith. So this American basketball player from the first U.S. Olympic basketball team is known as the a father of basketball uh, in Lithuania. Hmm, interesting. Who were some of the stars of the U.S. team? Can you talk about some of the players? Yeah, so um, one of the stars was Joe Fortenberry, a uh, big Texan, 6'8", who I mentioned was the f is credited as the first player ever to dunk the basketball. And so he had a big height advantage over most of the opponents in the Olympic tournament. And also he would be the guy that would uh, do the center jump for the U.S. team and allow us to keep possession of the ball. Um, you had uh, Frank Lubin, who I mentioned from UCLA, who is uh, another tall 
center and was able to score a lot of points. Um, Francis Johnson was the brother of the coach, Gene Johnson. And to his dying day, whenever he was interviewed, he always called himself the Michael Jordan (laughs) of his time. (laughs) Um, So I would love to be able to watch some highlights (laughs) of him and see if that was really true. A player named Bill Wheatley also came from the McPherson team, and he had the honor of being the first Olympic basketball player ever to receive a gold medal. He, he was the sort of the captain of the McPherson team, and he got to stand in the front of the line and have the first Olympic gold medal draped over his neck. And uh, James Naismith was there to participate in the medal ceremony following the, the basketball tournament. Yeah, so what did Naismith think about everything? That I mean, he must have been, I like to use the term, happier than a pig in slop. He must have been thrilled and <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. And he and he must have been thrilled to see his invention become the spectacle that it did and funny as i'm as as i'm just thinking about it happier than a pig in slop that's what the championship (laughs) game was played in slop exactly no it's funny you said that i was just thinking the same thing exactly that's what it was um so he said immediately after those games that this was the highlight of his life uh to see his invention played um at the olympics by all these countries from around the world some of the players thought that that was a little bit funny that he said that because they recognized what a joke of a game <laughs> this gold medal game had been. And when, when Naismith said this was the finest exhibition of basketball he'd ever seen, they kind of laughed about what it had actually been. But you can't blame him. I mean, here's a guy who invents a sport, and he's 76 years old, and he gets to go to Berlin and, and see it played. Uh, it was a tremendous feeling he had. He, he wrote a letter back home to his family saying that he had really enjoyed hanging out in the Olympic Village and getting to meet the athletes and the coaches from these teams from around the world and posing for pictures with them. He also said that he had always thought of basketball as a global game. You know, he had invented it at an international training school. The players in that first game had come from all over the world. And so he felt like that it was a perfect match between uh, this game and the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the U.S., really did steamroll through the tournament. Uh, like like we talked about, they won their first game by forfeit over Spain, which was in the midst of a civil war. Then the U.S. beat Estonia 52-28. to They took care of the Philippines 56-23. to They beat Mexico 25-10. to And then they beat Canada in that gold medal game 19-8. to And that game really had to be the most interesting game of all because of the conditions. Talk more about the game and just how, I guess it had to be disappointing, but, but talk about that game and, you know, how it was perceived and what the actual venue was like. Did people come and watch and the weather and, Tell us about this game. I mean, 19 to 8, you know, wow, crazy. Crazy. Um, So the night before the game, because I I mentioned there were two American teams that were combined to become the U.S. Olympic team that year. And the rules in the Olympics were that only seven players could dress out uh, for any one game. 
And so these two teams, the team from Kansas and the team from LA would alternate which games they played in the Olympics. And it was because of the forfeit, it kind of threw off the alternating schedule that they had. Okay. So wait, so so wait, so wait. So we really went with two teams and they alternated or they didn't combine them. Not really. So they were on the boat to Germany when they realized that this is what was going to have to happen. Um, So instead of having a 14 man roster for these games, they would have a seven man roster and they were largely kept intact. All right. All right. So now, so wait, wait, one more question with that. Yes. So was Jimmy needles, the head coach of both teams or how did all that work? Talk about how, how, how the U S team was set up for the Olympics. Yes. So um, because the Universals team had won the qualifying tournament in Los, in New York, they Jimmy Needles was named the head coach of the U.S. Olympic basketball team. Gene Johnson, the coach of the McPherson, the runners up at the qualifying tournament, was named the assistant coach. They had um, seven players, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Hollywood team. The runners-up were able to play six players on the team. And then one college player, Ralph Bishop from the University of Washington, was the 14th player of the U.S. Olympic basketball team. They divided the teams into two teams of seven when they found out that you could only have seven guys in uniform for any one game. They were largely kept intact as an L.A. team and a Kansas team. One or two players switched. So the Kansans had one guy that was added to the L.A. team and vice versa. So at the Olympic basketball tournament, they would alternate which seven guys dressed out and played in the games. And because of the forfeit, it kind of threw off the way that those alternating teams were supposed to be scheduled. And so the gold medal game, which you would assume would be played by the American champions, the Hollywood team, was actually due for the McPherson players to play. Hmm. And so the L.A. guys all complained to Jimmy Needles the night before that game saying, Hey, we were the U S champions. We should be the ones who get to play in this game. And, but then you had Gene Johnson, the McPherson coach who was very strong willed man. And he said, well, basically tough luck, you know, it's we're due, we're playing in it. Um, so you had the U S runners up that, uh, were actually representing the United States in this, um, gold medal basketball game. And nobody so, foresaw this coming and they didn't rearrange how they didn't, how who should play that first game after the forfeit? No, uh, Gene Johnson was not going to give that up. Um, he considered his team better anyway. It was an upset that they lost in New York City. Um, his players loved him, where the LA players didn't even like Jimmy Needles. Uh, he had less sort of control of what was going on, and so uh, Johnson held on to um, this break that he got with having his team get to play in the gold medal game. Um, now this game was set to be played outside. Uh, the weather had been pretty fine for the first few rounds. And it, it sounds crazy to consider playing a game outside, but for most of these guys, they had grown up playing basketball outside, just like most people do, you know, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a backyard or a driveway or something. So they didn't at that time think it was, you know, a hundred percent crazy, but the leading into the gold medal game, it started to rain uh, terribly the day before. Um, and by the time of the gold medal game, the court had actually turned into what one player described as like a kiddie pool because the court <laughs> itself was surrounded by a, a, a little bit of a wall. And so the, the water was just collecting on this court, what was considered the main court. And so they did move the game to a side court 
where there wasn't a wall, but still the, the mud, this clay tennis court was, um, it was like a big mud puddle. Um, another interesting aspect to this, you've heard of the book, the book boys in the boat, probably Mm -hmm. um, about the U S crew team and how they upset the Germans. Well, that gold medal uh, rowing competition was taking place at the exact same day and exact same time as the gold medal basketball game. And at that time in history, um, rowing was much more popular sport than basketball, especially in, in Germany. And so everybody was paying attention to the rowing competition. Nobody was standing out in the rain watching this gold medal basketball game. Um, even Hitler was watching the rowing competition. The international radio broadcast of the Olympics that day was covering the rowing, not basketball. Uh, there's the infamous uh, documentary that uh, Lenny Riefenstahl made of those Olympics, and she includes about one second of basketball in there. So <laughs> nobody was really paying attention to this gold medal basketball game. Um, the media who were there from the United States writing about the game described it uh, just trying to hold on to the basketball as like trying to hold on to a bar of soap in a bathtub, you know, and the way it was just squirting out of the player's hands. Uh, They wrote about how... Let let me interrupt for a second. Was there ever any um, suggestion to move the game to the next day, or was that the last day of the Olympics? Yeah, it was basically the last day of the Olympics. Basketball was one of the final sports to be concluded. There was... Um, suggestions from the American team of moving the game inside. Uh, but the German Olympic officials said that they just didn't have the setup um, for a basketball games to be played mm-hmm. inside at the, at the nearest, um, what would be considered an arena, you know? So they said, we play soccer outside in the rain. You can play basketball outside in the rain. Um, and so that's what was left to happen. Um, and uh, players were sliding, you know, almost like you would imagine a football game now, like a fun football game in bad weather, right? But it didn't make for a very fun uh, basketball game in that bad weather. There were only eight points total scored in the second half of the game. Um, the ball just was really impossible to hold on to or to shoot. You couldn't dribble. And so what the American players did is before there, there was no shot clock then, so they said they basically just played keep away um, with the ball just to get the game over with. Wow. So everybody there was really in that area to watch the rowing competition. Were there any fans there to watch basketball? I mean, did they play in front of 50 people, 100 people? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that what the exact attendance was. It wasn't listed in the box score or anything, but from um, the articles that I read and pictures I've seen, I think there were probably about 100 people there. Um, they were um, standing under umbrellas. Uh, some The court was next to a parking lot, so some people were sitting in their cars watching the game. <laughs> I can't um, even imagine. <laughs> I know. Uh, some people were um, uh, sitting under big blankets, and actually one of the members of the Canadian Olympic team the silver medalists had the sort of foresight to realize that this had been a historic event, you know, the first Olympic gold medal basketball game. And so when the game was over, he got the basketball and he gave it to his wife who was sitting there under a big blanket and said, hide this under your blanket. And so they, they left those Olympic games with the basketball that, oh, that wow. was played in, in the first gold medal basketball game. And do they we know where that, um, yeah. Okay. Go. 
Yeah, I don't know where it is now. I know okay. it's eventually put up for auction, and so it is housed, I uh, believe, in a museum somewhere. Um, and I've seen pictures of the ball. It was a German brand of basketball called Berg, um, and so the family had it for 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 generations, and then eventually um, thought that this belonged, you know, to the world, and so they they auctioned it off. I don't know if you can answer this question. But outside of that gold medal game, what was the most surprising thing about basketball in the 1936 Olympics? Well, James Naismith kept a diary um, during the Olympics. And so he commented on sort of the strengths and weaknesses of the different teams that were there. Um, He was really impressed with the team from the Philippines. And he felt that they played an exciting, um, uh, well-played brand of basketball, but they simply didn't have the height to compete with the United States, especially, like I said, when there was no goaltending rule and there was a center jump after every basket. Um, He was the one that also commented on how far to go the European team still had um, and the the sort of relative lack of sophistication that they had in the Olympics. Um, And so I, I think it would be a fascinating Olympics for us now as modern basketball fans to go back and watch and see in what ways does the game resemble what it looks like now and mm. what ways does it not? Um, as I mentioned, you did have American players who could dunk um, and they did run a fast break offense. And there were coaches like coach Iba, like well into the 1960s that remembered Gene Johnson and this two, one, two full court pressure defense that he played and that they adopted. So, I mean, there was a legacy of this team and their style of play that existed for decades afterwards in the style of basketball that a lot of college teams played uh, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier, you mentioned that there was one college player selected to the team, and that was Ralph Bishop. How was he selected? Why was he the player selected to represent, I guess, colleges in in or on the Olympic team? Right. So it had been decided um, prior to to the qualifying tournament that this is how the roster would be uh, created that they would take seven players from the winning team six from the runners up and one uh, extra player um, from any team and i think that basically they were throwing a bone to the college teams that entered the tournament to take one of their players Um, the teams that entered the qualifying tournament represented uh, colleges aau teams and ymca teams those were the three sort of leagues of basketball that produced the qualifying teams. University of Washington played fairly well in the qualifying tournament and Bishop was their best player and he was a tall player. And so I think they were looking to add some additional height to the team when that was such an advantage uh, with the way the rules were set up. Do you know, did he get into any games? Yes, he did. Everyone on the, on the roster got into some games. Um, I don't know how well he played. The interesting thing about Bishop is that he was classmates at the University of Washington with the boys in the boat. You know, mm. the, that that famous team, they were from Washington, University of Washington. And so um, he hung out with those guys on the, on the boat ride over to Germany on the SS Manhattan and had friends, you know, both on the basketball team and the, and the crew team. Did everyone get a gold medal? Everyone eventually got a gold medal. So at the medal ceremony itself in Berlin – only the players who had been on that roster for the gold medal game were invited to the medal ceremony. Mm-hmm. So I read a book that Sam Balter, uh, who was a member of the Hollywood team, his daughter wrote a book about his experience. And in that book, 
he talks about the fact that he was just playing cards at the Olympic Village, and he and his one of his uh, teammates from Los Angeles decided to go over to the Olympic Stadium. And they get there, and they see the basketball team receiving their gold medals. And they hadn't even been invited to the medal ceremony because they hadn't played in that game. And so it wasn't until they got back home to the United States that they had to sit and watch their mailbox uh, for their gold medals to arrive in the mail. So they didn't even go and watch their fellow Olympians. They're technically their teammates play no, the gold even, medal game. Well, they did watch them play, but the, the um, medal ceremony was not until the next day. And so oh, they I just, get it. I get it. So you. he was standing on the sidelines watching the game, standing in the rain, <laughs> and then wasn't even told when the medal ceremony would be and just sort of stumbled upon it. And uh, the Los Angeles players were disappointed they didn't get to play. They were disappointed they weren't invited to the medal ceremony. And they had to wait weeks afterwards uh, just for their medals to arrive in the mail. Was there was there resentment between the two teams? I think there was. Um, and going back to even before they got on the boat, I mentioned that there was some question of whether the Hollywood team would even make it to New York in time to participate, you know, to get to Berlin for the Olympics. And so the team from Kansas was already in New York and they were hoping that the Los Angeles players wouldn't make it because then they would get to play in every game oh, wow. in the Olympics. Um, but they did make it. Um, they didn't really mix that much as, as players, as teammates on the team. They did stay um, uh, in the, the dormitories were set up uh, sort of team by team. So they got to know each other some, just by living together those two weeks of the Olympics. Um, but they really didn't come together the way you think of a team coming together with that shared experience. Mm -hmm. Such an interesting dynamic. If you had to go back and look through and, and, and pick the star, whether it's from one team or the other, who was the best player for the 1936 U.S. Olympic basketball team and why? Yeah, I think it was – Probably Joe Fortenberry. He went on to some success in the AAU after those Olympics also um, with the Phillips 66ers, which were sort of a, a famous AAU basketball yep. team of that era. As I mentioned, he was the considered the first player to dunk. And so I think he was a dominant player as a scorer and as a rebounder and as a shot blocker. And so I would say that Fortenberry would be considered the best player on that team. But, I mean, it was a very talented team. Bill Wheatley, Sam Balter, Francis Johnson. These are great players as well. But I think Fortenberry really stood out. Mm -hmm. Were any of them around long enough to play professionally? Did any of them ever get into the BAA um, you know, the Basketball Association right. of America or the uh, National Basketball League? I, no, they did not. And I, I think that that's one reason why this team has been relatively uh, forgotten, you know, um, is that none of the players went on to any fame after these Olympics. A lot of them, all of them lost their jobs even by participating in the Olympics. Uh, their employers, the refinery and the studio, no longer even sponsored basketball teams after these Olympics. Hmm. Um, and uh, so some of the guys just went to work afterwards. A few continued to play basketball uh, for a other AAU teams, um, but they really were a generation before um, the professional basketball. And so this Olympic experience was the highlight of their lives as basketball players. Mm -hmm. What's the legacy of the 1936 U S Olympic basketball team? Well, I think 
the USA basketball in general is so popular globally now. You know, these guys are rock stars wherever they go. Um, someone my age thinks about the dream team, you know, as just an incredible thing to, to watch that for the first time and to see players like Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and Larry Bird on the Olympic basketball team. Amazing, you know, and so for, for the team in 1960 that had Jerry West and Oscar Robertson or for the dream team or for players like Kevin Durant and LeBron James more recently to exist, there had to be these guys first, you know, mm -hmm. so I think their legacy is they were the first USA dream team. They put basketball on the map internationally. They were dominant then. We've been dominant in basketball ever since. Um, and so I think that's their legacy. And it is an interesting story to think about the origins, um, sort of as inauspicious as they were in this muddy basketball tournament. <laughs> but that's what that's what got the whole thing going. And for me, who's interested in sports and history, it's really fascinating to look back and see how this whole thing got started. Sure. Did anyone leave Germany feeling good? Did anyone leave thinking, you know what, the, these Olympics help help calm things? Did was there or did people leave saying, "Oh boy, we, the world's in trouble"? Yeah, most of the basketball players really left having enjoyed a basketball tournament, you know, and and really weren't putting that much thought into the politics of it. Even Sam Balter, the one Jewish member of the U.S. team, to his dying day said he was proud that he had participated and that it had been the highlight of his life, um, even knowing what happened in retrospect. There was one member of the team, Frank Lubin, who I mentioned, stuck around in Europe to go teach the game in Lithuania. He stayed in Berlin for a few days after those Olympics before he went to Lithuania. And he was the one player that really sort of had that benefit of being there after the rest of the world went home and after this facade that had been constructed in Berlin was, was taken down and all the anti-Semitic posters went back up on the streets of Berlin and the benches were segregated again and the restaurants had signs saying the Jews were not welcome in this swimming pools. And so he noticed all that. And I think he was probably the one player on the team that had a bit of foreshadowing of what might be coming. The rest of the guys, like a lot of athletes were, sort of focused on their competition and had fun in the Olympic village, had fun winning a gold medal and, and didn't necessarily leave with any uh, grander political thoughts about what might be coming. Hmm. How did Hitler pull this off? Oh gosh. Well, you know, it's one reason why this book is called games of deception. I mean, there was deception geared towards the international community, but also he had built a society that was built on lies and propaganda and, um, and anti-Semitism and sort of choosing a group uh, for everyone else to blame the world's problems on, you know, and to playing on people's um, the, the worst side of human nature, um, relying on people to be bystanders uh, and not take action in the face of injustice. And it's something that dictators and despots have, have done over human history. And, you know, you still see uh, sort of remnants of that in some ways today. So, scary political times. Um, and I think that that's one of the lessons of this book is this idea of speaking up when you see um, injustice happening anywhere in the world. You know, I read books by Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor who wrote the book Night, you know, and he said he swore never to be silent when he saw humanity imperiled. I met a 97-year-old man when I was doing research for these Olympics named 
Dr. Al Miller. He lives in Cincinnati. At the time of the Olympics, he was a 13-year-old Jewish kid living in Berlin. And he said he would stand on the street and watch the stormtroopers march past him. Many of them were people he knew from the neighborhood. Um, at his school, he was the last Jewish kid that was left when all the others had been bullied to the point that their parents pulled them out of the school. He just wanted to play soccer and be a regular kid at this school. Um, at age 13, he rode his bike to the Olympics. And he said that the first African-American man he ever saw was the fastest man in the world, Jesse mm, Owens. Wow. Um, year after that Olympics, his parents could see what was coming and they got their son out of Germany, age 14. He never knew if he'd see his parents again. Um, and during he did. They were able to escape a year later themselves. During World War II, he joined the United States Army and because he spoke German, he was used um, to interrogate Nazi POWs. Uh, he became a doctor, uh, an eye doctor in Cincinnati. And today at age 97, he still speaks to school children in Cincinnati twice a month about his experience and about the Holocaust. And I asked him, what do you tell these kids when they ask you, like, how do we prevent this type of thing from ever happening again? And he said that the kids already know the answer. They've already typically stated the answer that morning at school with their hands over their hearts when they re, uh, when they said the Pledge of Allegiance. And he wow. said the most most important thing is the last five words of the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, liberty and justice for all, and to remember the for all part. And he said uh, it's not just liberty and justice for some people, it's for everybody. And when we when we keep that in mind, we're in good shape. When we forget that part, then, then we've seen what can happen. Mm. You know, do, doing your interviews, the research – it must have been such an interesting journey for you. How difficult was it to write the book and and how difficult was it to hear some of what the people had to say about that period of time in history? Well, for this book, I had a contract that required me to finish it in one year. Uh, my first book, I had I took eight years because I didn't have a contract. <laughs> so I, I could take however long I needed. I didn't get the contract until after I'd finished writing it. So this one, the hard part was just getting it done, you know, in that one year time frame. So I spent six months doing the research and the interviews and traveling to different archives and libraries around the country. Um, because none of the players were still living, that actually helped me do it quickly because I didn't have to take time setting up interviews and traveling to go meet people and that sort of thing. I did interview sons and daughters of players from that team and other experts on that era, but most of the research was archival research. Um, it was difficult to read about the horrors of the Holocaust and a little bit um, sort of the, the disparate nature of the research. I mean, half the time I'm reading about basketball, the other half the time I'm reading about concentration camps, you know? So, hmm. I mean, to me as an author, that was what made it fascinating. And I always like to learn new things, you know? And so I was learning about this history of a game that I really enjoy. And I was learning about this terrible moment in history, but I think that's the important part about history is we do have to learn from it, you know, so I felt fortunate that I was learning what are the lessons of this period in history. And that's what I try to convey in the book and to use basketball as the hook um, to get people into a story, um, but then to also have some important lessons that you learn along the way. Mm -hmm. Well, what are you working on next, Andrew? Well, right now I'm writing a biography of Glenn Burke, a uh, major league baseball player mm -hmm. from the late seventies who is considered the first openly gay major league baseball player. And also along with Dusty Baker, 
in a game in October 1977. He invented the high five. Uh, they were the first two people ever to do a high five. Uh, and the Dodgers coined that term and used it as a marketing tool the next year. Uh, and so I'm about nine chapters into this book on Glenn Burke. It's due in February. Well, I can't wait to read it. As for Games of Deception, I got to tell you, I think it's somewhat apropos that a book like this comes out now in the climate that we live in. And I think it would make for a terrific gift during this holiday season. So please tell us, so please tell us uh, where we can get a copy of your book. Well, thanks, Warren. I do think that there are definitely echoes in this book from that time to this time. Um, and I think it would be a book that anybody who's interested in basketball or world history or both <laughs> would enjoy. And so you can find it um, at pretty much any local bookstore. And I always first say people should support their local bookstore. Um, you can also find it online uh, on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com, or you can go to the IndieBound website, which will direct you to independent bookstores around the country. But again, it's called Games of Deception, and it's really written in a way that is accessible to um, kids, to teenagers, um, and adults. And so I think it's a book that um, pretty much anybody can enjoy, and I loved writing it, and I hope people enjoy reading it. Well, Andrew, again, terrific book. You've been a terrific guest, and I want to thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks, Warren, and um, kudos to you for starting this podcast. I think it's a great idea, and I'm honored to be on your show. Thank you. You got it. Awesome. The U.S. Olympic men's basketball team has competed in 18 Olympic basketball tournaments. They won the gold the first seven times they played, winning the first 63 games they played before losing to the Soviet Union in the gold medal game in 1972. Overall, the U.S. has 16 gold medals, one silver, and one bronze. The overall record for the U.S. is 138 wins and five losses, three of those coming in 2004. And it all started in 1936 when the U.S. went 5-0 to capture the gold. The names of the men on that team from Universal Pictures, Sam Balter, Carl Knowles, Frank Lubin, Art Molnar, Donald Piper, Carl Shy, and Dwayne Swanson. From the McPherson Globe Refiners, you had Joe Fortenberry, Tex Gibbons, Francis Johnson, Jack Ragland, Willard Schmidt, and Bill Wheatley. The lone college player was Ralph Bishop from the University of Washington. 1948 marked the second time the U.S. played basketball in the games, and this time the team was made up of the best players rather than the two best teams. Okay, so this week's mailbag. I got a long note on sportsfh.com from a gentleman named John Steffenhagen, and here's an excerpt from it. My great-grandfather was Leo Lyons. He was a co-founder of the NFL in 1920, and his team, the Rochester Jeffersons, was a charter member of the league. I am currently writing a book on Leo's life, a very interesting life around football and the struggles he endured. Well, 
I immediately contacted John as I didn't know a lot about Leo, and the two of us got together for a wonderful interview. And now, on the next episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, Leo will be our topic. So apropos, as the NFL is in the midst of its 100-year anniversary celebration, that's next time, the story of Leo Lyons. For now, I'd like to thank Andrew Marinus for taking the time to speak with us about the 1936 U.S. Olympic men's basketball team. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.